good. I'm glad you're here tonight. I'm glad I'm here tonight. And um, if you've got a copy of God's Word, which if you don't, why? Um, Open it. Just open it to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. It has 22 stanzas with eight verses each. And uh, each stanza is entitled with a letter from the Hebrew alphabet. It starts off with Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, all the way through to the end of the alphabet. And uh, it has in each of those stanzas, practically every stanza, there are eight nouns for the Word of God. Maybe testimony, maybe commandment, maybe um, ordinance. Uh, There are eight of those, and practically every one of those are used in each of those 22 stanzas. In other words, almost every verse in Psalm 119, 176 verses, has a word in it that describes the Word of God. Now, who wrote this psalm? We don't know. We don't know if it was David. We don't know if it was Nehemiah, we don't know if it was Solomon, we don't know if it was Moses, we just don't know who wrote it, but whoever wrote it loved the Word of God. Now, whenever you think of the Reformation, that's what I hope you think about, is that uh, those in the Reformation loved the Word of God. In fact, out of the Reformation, you get this expression, sola scriptura, scripture alone. That's what Luther was saying. It was what Calvin was saying. It was what Zwingli was saying. It was what all of the reformers, it it was radically what the Anabaptists were saying. And that is, Scripture alone is our authority. Not a man, not a council, um, uh, not somebody in Rome, but Scripture itself is our authority. They loved the Word of God. They were committed to the Word of God. But they did not demonstrate that love toward one another very well. I'm going to close up Luther tonight, toward the, not toward the end of his life, but toward the end of his, well, I guess toward the end of his life, um, and Zwingli. Zwingli. Zwingli was a little younger than Luther, idolizing, that was his hero. That was, um, that was the man that he looked up to. Zwingli, you remember, was in the Grossmünster in Zurich, the great church in Zurich, Switzerland. Luther, of course, was in um, Germany. And there had been those that wanted to pull the German Reformation and the Swiss Reformation together. Now, there are the two leaders of the Reformation right there. Um, and Luther said... We will not do it unless we agree on doctrine. Well, they meet. They meet in uh, 1529 in a German city called Marburg. And there they come together and they discuss. There are 14 different principles that they discuss and they are right on target with each other on all 14 of them except for one sticking point. The sticking point is the Lord's Supper. Now, you've got to give it to Luther. Luther had come so far 
in what he taught, in what he believed, and in his uh, understanding of the word. I mean, he had come light years from where he was as a monk in the Roman church, now this leading reformer. Uh, all the things that we talked about with Luke is just staggering. But when it came to the Lord's table, he was not where the Roman church was in transubstantiation, which said that the bread actually became the body and the wine actually became the blood. Luther said, no, it's not. It does not. Uh, he says, and what they call what he believes is consubstantiation, that there is the presence of Christ in the bread and the presence of Christ in the wine. Zwingli, on the other hand, uh, says, no, it is symbolic. It is doesn't have the presence of Christ in it, not even a little bit. It is all symbolic. Well, early in the morning, on the day they were going to debate this, Luther slips into the room with a piece of chalk. He writes on that table. You, you can see barely there. He writes on that table in chalk these words in Latin, hoc est uh, corpus meum. And then he gets a tablecloth and he puts it over the table. Zwingli comes in, all the rest of the people come in and, because they didn't have television or internet, so this was the entertainment right here. Uh, so they came in to listen to these two men debate. And so Luther says, yes, the presence of Christ is there just like it is in iron, fire in iron. The fire is not in there, but the fire has a presence in there. And Zwingli said, you can't find that in Scripture anywhere. And Luther stands up and rips off the tablecloth, and he says, there it is. Hoc est corpus meum. This is my body. And Zwingli looks back at him and said, well, Jesus said he was the door, but he's not a door. It's symbolic. It stands for something. And Luther said, that's it. Forget it will not join these reformations together. Now, as I sh shared with you, Zwingli idolized Luther. And they say that day, he stood up and looked at Luther and he said, I long for you to still be my friend. And he extended his hand to shake his hand. And Luther pushed it away. Sounds like a Baptist more than a Lutheran, doesn't he? And Zwingli, they say, turned and in tears walked out the door. Zwingli went on to be killed in battle by the Catholics. Uh, they used to fight in those days, actual fight. And he was killed in battle by the Catholics. And when word came back to Luther that young Zwingli had been killed in battle, he said he got what he deserved. His death proves that I am right, that he was wrong. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. Well, that just kind of hurts your feelings a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, he was a stubborn old man. I think Luther was very sick. I really do. Things that came out of Luther toward the end of his life didn't sound really like Luther. Um, but uh, I really think that Luther was not well um, from this point on to his death. So, there we go. There is the Reformation in Europe. There's the Reformation in Germany. There's the Reformation in Switzerland. 
and we're going to take you across the English Channel now, and we're going to come to um, England. You're going to get across uh, the English Channel, and you're going to come to a Reformation there in England. It really comes in two parts. But if, listen to this, if the Reformation in Germany came from a little monk's cell where a monk slept and where he ate and where he prayed and where he lived, and um, the Anabaptists, the Radical Reformation, came in a prayer meeting in a barn, and if the Calvinistic Reformation came at a lawyer's desk and the desk of a scholar, then the Reformation in England came out of the king's bedchamber. And it's interesting how all that takes place. And you say, well, why do you say that? Well, I'll tell you the story. Pretty fascinating. It's going to begin, uh, really, this Reformation comes in two parts. You have the one that's the political Reformation under Henry VIII, and then about 100 years later, maybe not quite 100 years later, somewhere around there, you're going to have a real theological Reformation take place. Uh, the interesting thing is this. England now is under the house of Tudor. Scotland is under the house of the Stuarts. And they hate each other, but they're kin. James V of Scotland's mother was Mary Tudor, uh, who was in the line of the kings of England. Uh, they have a boy. She and James IV have a boy. He's James V. James V is going to have a girl. He's going to die. Uh, <clears throat> having fought the English, he's going to die with one child. That child is a girl. Her name is Mary. His wife's name is Mary of Guise. She is French. There is a strong connection between the Scots and France. And they have this connection because it's kind of a threat. England, don't you attack us. If you attack us, you're going to have to fight the French as well. And the French would say to England, don't you fight us, because if you do, in your back door is going to come the Scots. Well, England now has a relationship and an alliance with Spain. Here is England aligned with Spain, and that comes about this way. Um, Henry the Henry VII has a little boy by the name of Arthur. He wants to pull the Spanish into an alliance with him so that he's got leverage against the French and against the Scots. Now, have y'all got that all straight? You with me right now? So he decides, I'm going to marry my boy Arthur off to this young princess out of the house of Spain by the name of Catherine of Aragon. And so they get married, and there is an alliance now, just like France and Scotland. Now England and Spain are allied. The only problem is, is that within four months, Arthur dies. And um, there is trouble a-brewing because of that. Uh, everybody's speculating. Did she kill him? What happened here? And so Henry VII says, well, I've got one more boy who will become Henry VIII, I tell you what I'll do, we'll get a special dispensation from the Pope and we'll let Henry VIII marry his dead brother's widow, Catherine of Aragon. Because they believed that that was wrong to do at that point in time. 
And uh, so they got a special dispensation. Henry VII, who was a good Catholic, told the Pope, I need for you to do this so that you'll have two strong Catholic nations aligned together. And so the Pope was all too happy to do it. So Catherine of Aragon, who's older than Henry VIII, marries that old bull of the woods right there. And um, Henry VII goes the way of all the earth. He dies. And when he dies, Henry VIII comes to the throne, and what Henry wants more than anything else is he wants a male heir. Now, he's had five children by Catherine of Aragon. Four of those children have died. One is alive, but now, ladies, you just, have, you, you just have to understand it was that day and time. It was a girl, and he didn't want a girl. And he was determined that no woman would sit on the throne of England. He wanted a male heir. So he got it in his mind, I'm cursed. This marriage is cursed. And it's cursed because I should not have married my brother's wife. We've had four of our children die. We've got a girl, and that doesn't help me out in any situation. So what I need to do is I need to get rid of this wife so I can marry someone else. Now, behind the scenes, there's a mistress in the king's bedchamber. Her name happens to be Anne Boleyn. So while all this is going on, he's trying to get the Catholic Church, the Pope, to give him a decree of annulment. Now, Catherine of Aragon has a little nephew. By the way, this is my nephew here tonight. Can y'all guess what he does? He's an engineer. Nobody can join this church unless they're in All these men in here, they're all engineers, every one of them. Um, well, Catherine of Aragon has a nephew. Like Debbie's got a nephew sitting by her. Her nephew happens to be Charles V, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, the muscle for the pope. He's the Luca Brazza for the pope. If anybody bothers the pope, Charles V comes. Well, Catherine goes to her little nephew and says, listen, nephew, I don't want to be dishonored. I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want a divorce from Henry VIII. I am legitimately his wife. And so he goes to the Pope and leans on the Pope and says, don't do it. Don't give him an annulment for his marriage. And so the Pope comes back to Henry VIII and says, I'm sorry, we can't do that. I can't annul your marriage because you have been legitimately married in the eyes of the church. Well, you did not tell Henry VIII no. And so Henry VIII begins to do something with the Parliament of 1534. The Parliament of 1534 says this. We recognize that the marriage between Catherine of Aragon and Henry VIII is annulled. Now, how can they do that? Well, they can do that because that same parliament said no longer is the pope head of the church in England, but now Henry VIII is head of the church in England. He just took it over. <laughs> he just That's Henry VIII. He just takes the thing over. They do not send any more finances, contributions. They take them all for Henry VIII, 
and now they turn the church of Rome into the church of England there in England. And so that's how he gets around it. So he puts Catherine of Aragon off into a convent for the rest of her life. She goes off into that convent. And you say, well, now what do the people do? Well, Parliament of 1534 also says nobody had ever better call the king schismatic, creating a schism, or a heretic, or we'll just cut your head off. Now, who happens to be sitting there but a good Roman Catholic who's um, Lord of the Chancellor, whose name is Sir Thomas More, a man for all seasons. And More does not speak against the king or against what the king is doing. What he does do is he stands for the Roman church. And that just drives Henry VIII nuts. So he puts him in the Tower of London, and he cuts his... Does anybody remember what uh, Thomas More said just as they were to cut his head off? I think he says, I am, I am the king's good friend but God's more. And with that, off goes the head of Sir Thomas More. In the midst of all this, Anne Boleyn is expecting. And she gives birth, lo and behold, to a girl of all things. And it throws Henry into a tizzy. The little girl is named Elizabeth. So he's got two daughters now, one by Catherine of Aragon named Mary, and he has one who is by Anne Boleyn named Elizabeth, and she becomes great with child again, but the child dies, and he's determined, I'm not going to wait and waste time. I'm getting old. I've got to get rid of this wife, and so he accuses Anne Boleyn of adultery of incest and witchcraft. Now, there you go. Put her in the Tower of London and off with her head. And so they do. They put her in the Tower of London and they cut her head off. And by the time they cut her head off, guess what? He's already courting somebody else. He's courting a lady by the name of Jane Seymour, who becomes on to make a television series called Dr. Quinn. She's a medicine woman. No, Jane Seymour, who is really a very good woman and um, gives Henry what he wants, gives him a boy. And uh, the boy becomes Edward VI. Now keep that in your mind. Edward VI of Henry VIII because Edward VII is going to be the son of Victoria and uh, Prince Albert who becomes king, and he is he's just a... Do you know that there are some who believe that he was actually Jack the Ripper? Now, that's a whole other thing. We don't have time to talk about that. But he is, he is a mess. Uh, Edward, VII, Edward VIII becomes king, but he's in love with an American divorcee by the name of Wallace Simpson, and he abdicates the throne 
and he gives the throne to his brother who becomes George VI, who has two daughters, and one of those daughters happens to be the next Elizabeth II to sit on the throne. Boy, isn't this stuff fascinating? Just hang on, just wait a minute. Now, Edward VII, he's got a boy. And he's thrilled that he's got a boy. The two girls are pushed completely out of the picture. We don't really even know where they are. They're, you know, I don't know what happened to Elizabeth. Mary was around somewhat, but Elizabeth was completely gone out of the way. But here is Henry VII, and what Henry VII is going to do is that he is going to solidify. By the way, he becomes king at nine years of age. He's going to solidify the Reformation in England up until his death. Now, let me just stop it right there, and let me tell you what else is going on at this time. There is a guy by the name of William Tyndale. William Tyndale, who is convinced that our authority is the Word of God, has determined that he is going to give us an English Bible. Uh, just like Luther gave the Germans a Bible in German, which I shared with you last week, showed you last week. Well, Tyndale is going to come, and from the Latin, he is going to um, translate. Tyndale is going to translate from the Latin Vulgate, from the work of Erasmus in the Textus Receptus, and from Luther's German Bible, this guy is a linguistic genius. He is going to take that, and he is committed to giving an accurate translation, and it becomes uh, what we know as the Tyndall translation of the Bible. He is in Hamburg, Germany. He had to flee England because they were trying to kill him for translating the Bible into English. He told the Catholic Church... He said, I will translate the Word of God into the English language so that every plowboy in England will know the Bible better than every bishop in Rome. Well, he did it. He translated, he translated it. They would sneak it back into the country. I've got you uh, a copy of the first part of a Latin um, Bible there. Uh, that's 1555, I believe. Here is what they do. Now, they begin to cry out. They, they eventually catch Tyndale. They catch him, they take him, they hang him, strangle him, and then they burn him. And as he's strangling, as they're strangling him, hanging him, he cries out these words, I pray, O God, open the king of England's eyes. Now, hold on to that prayer. Remember that's, You remember Hus prayed like that? And something, well, watch what happens with this. They, they get that into the country. From Tyndale's copy, there's a man named Coverdale. All these names ring bells with you? You ever seen the Coverdale Bible? Well, Coverdale helps put together from Tyndale's Bible what is known as the Great Bible. That's about 1539 or so. Right behind that, they come out. Here is the Geneva Bible. Uh, in 1560, I think, right there. From those, they're going to come out with this. This is a page from the 1611 King James, right there. So there you go. From the Latin and uh, the Greek of Erasmus and from 
the German, Tyndale puts it together, Coverdale gets it, they come out with the Great Bible and the Geneva Bible, and all of that's going to be the basis now of what's going to come out in 1611. But we're before 1611, so let's just kind of back up. Now, the Bible has come out. People are getting the Word of God in their hands. Henry VIII goes the way of all the earth. He dies. Uh, I'm sure it came as a shock to him. But uh, he dies, and when he dies, his nine-year-old son comes to the throne, Edward VI. Now, Edward VI, by the time he's nine, knows Greek, knows Latin, and can translate the Greek New Testament at nine years of age. He's a genius. And he loves the Word of God. Remember Tyndale's prayer? Oh, God, open the eyes of the king of England. Well, it may not have happened with Henry, but it sure happened with his son. They bring that nine-year-old boy forward to put him in the chair and to coronate him. They bring out three big, broad swords because he's the king of three kingdoms, the kingdom of England, the kingdom of Scotland, the kingdom of Ireland. And this nine-year-old boy stands up and he says, wait, where is the most important sword of all? And in the middle of this coronation ceremony, all of these bishops and all of these political leaders turn around and say, which sword are you referring to? He says, the sword of the Lord, the Bible. Now listen to what he says. That book is the sword of the Spirit, and to be preferred before all of your words, that ought and all right to govern us. Who used them for the people's safety by God's appointment? Without that sword, we are nothing. We can do nothing. We have no power. From that, we are what we are this day. From what we receive, whatsoever it is that we at this present time do assume, he that rules without it is not to be called God's minister or God's king. Under that we ought to live, to fight, to govern the people, and to perform all of our affairs. From that alone we obtain all power, all virtue, all grace, all salvation, and whatsoever we need of divine strength. A nine-year-old boy said that about the Word of God. And he demanded that they bring the Bible out, and he said the Bible will lead the procession before the king and before the swords of state. Now that is some more kid right there. Somebody did something with him in Sunday school. Huh? He dies at 15. Under his leadership, he really solidified all that was taking place in England in the reform of the church, but he dies. You know, he comes to the throne at nine, he's dead at 15. His sister comes to the throne, Mary. Now remember, Mary's mother is Catherine of Aragon, who is a devout Catholic. She comes to the throne as a devout Catholic. And she begins to systematically undo everything that Henry VIII and then her brother, Edward VI, have done in the Reformation. She gives back the church to the Pope. The Pope now becomes um, uh, the sovereign head of the church. 
And uh, she begins now a, a reign of persecution against the Protestants. She is going to attempt to put to death every Protestant preacher in all of England. And because she does that, did you talk about Cranmer and Ridley? And she, Dr. Chesney talked about all of that. Well, listen, let me tell you, from that, she garners a name to this day, and her name is Bloody Mary. Now, everybody gets Bloody Mary and Mary, Queen of Scots, confused. Uh, don't do that. Bloody Mary, <laughs> she reigns for about five or six years, and she dies. And she dies without an heir. She cannot produce a child, uh, male nor female. And most likely, she had cancer, and uh, she died from that. And she dies leaving a half-sister. Remember Elizabeth? A half-sister by that witch Anne Boleyn who was put to death and lost her head there at the Tower of London. And Elizabeth comes to the throne. But let me tell you something. She was more like her daddy than any boy would have ever been. She was powerful. She was strong. She was smart. She was sharp. She was Protestant. She reverses this thing almost back up again. But she halts it right there and she says, no more. If you're going to be Catholic, you be Catholic. And the rest of us are going to be Church of England. She gives the church the common book of prayer. And uh, if you walked into the Church of England, into one of their services, you really would have never been able to tell the difference uh, between that and the Roman church, however, doctrinally, now get this, doctrinally, they've begun to shift away from the Roman church. Do you know who taught Elizabeth the Bible? Her little brother. Through series, they still exist of letters. He tutored her in the word of God, and she was committed to what he was committed to, which is an interesting thing, how at a distance he influenced the woman who would reign. What did she reign? Forty-some-odd years uh, as the Queen of England, powerful woman, the most powerful monarch in the world at the height of her reign. Virgin queen, she never married. Um, they say that she was not very attractive uh, you know, she's the one that caked on all of this stuff on her face and um, wore wigs and wanted to be loved. She was powerful. She was shrewd. She was a politician's politician. Um, she was everything that you see in um, a powerful woman, and yet she had a broken heart. She had a first cousin who was known as one of the most beautiful women in all of Europe, that men absolutely loved. When she walked into a room, she they fell in love with her. You know what her name was? Mary, Queen of Scots, who claimed she had more legitimate claim to the throne of England than this woman. And these two women fought for years until she had Mary put to death. 
And when they put Mary to death, she went into such a state of depression that the man who went to do it, she had him thrown. <laughs> oh, the things I could say. But I've got to go home with my wife tonight. Well, that's Elizabeth. Now, during the time of Mary, so many people had left England, and they left and they went to Geneva. Calvin was there now. Calvin was much younger than um, Luther or Zwingli. In fact, when, Calvin, when uh, Luther and Zwingli met at Marburg, Calvin would have been maybe 19 years old. And uh, he was studying law, and then he went and studied theology as well. And he's now set up, he's ruling essentially Geneva uh, as a Protestant city. And all of these folks under Mary go to Geneva, and they come back under Elizabeth because they're now able to come back and worship uh, in the Protestant church. But as they come back, they discover that the Church of England is very different than what they had uh, understood in Geneva. And so a lot of those that came back now start to say, we've got to do something in the Church of England because it's still too Catholic. We've got to reform some of it. By the way, Calvin fought the Catholics tooth and nail. Uh, he fought the Catholic. He fought everybody. He fought Baptists. He fought... Um, he fought everybody. Uh, but they come back and they say, we've got to change the Church of England. We need to get in the Church of England and we need to purify it. And they became known as Puritans. That's where it comes from. And uh, others that came back said, we can't, we can't stand that. We can't do it. And they became the nonconformists, the separatists, the Baptists. And they said, we can't do anything with it. We can't do anything with the church. We can't do anything inside the church. And so they now start worshiping outside. There's another book that is written about this time that is printed, which is kind of interesting. It's one of the first books printed. It's called Fox's Book of Martyrs. How many of y'all have read that? A couple of you? Fox's Book of Martyrs? Well, did you know that that's one of the first books ever to be printed? Uh, it was. It was printed, and uh, the people in England got it. They're reading the Bible. They're reading Fox's Book of Martyrs, and they're seeing how all of these Christians have been martyred down through history, and they come to the time now where the Church of England now is arresting them, putting them in jail because they're not coming to the Church of England, because uh, they are nonconformist, or because these Puritans have gotten too out of control in the church, so they're beginning to be persecuted, and this is what they're desiring. They're saying this, the government should have nothing to do with the church. Amen. Amen. It should have nothing to do with the church. It should leave the church alone, and that's what they're thinking. What does that sound like? Sounds like Baptist to me. And so while they're saying that, they're also saying it's not right to persecute people because they worship the way they feel led to worship. And so these Puritans and these nonconformists and these separatists all together begin to think we would love to go to a place where we are free to worship. And so you get a bunch of these folks who say we will go somewhere else. We will be pilgrims. 
and we will get on a boat called the Mayflower, and we will go to a new land where the Mayflower Compact says we will propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Spread, teach, preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in a new land, and it will become a shining city on a hill. America. Hmm. That's just good stuff. That's fascinating. Now, I will stop there. And I will get you across the ocean, across the North Atlantic, next Wednesday night, Lord willing, 